Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our author joins us from Brisbane, Australia today to discuss a book she's written, directed towards children, titled Duck Magic. And our author is Elvira Davis. Elvira, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to hear from you and to visit with you. You are a, I won't say a prolific author, but you have written another book. This one in particular is directed towards children. Tell me your background. How did you get interested in writing books, and in particular this one, Duck Magic? Well, I was a teacher for 30 years, and um, I first wrote this and typed it on an old typewriter, um, and... Uh, I uh, used it to uh, entertain the children in my class, um, and then I thought I might change it into an e-book, so that got me digitizing it and how, looking for a publisher. Is, is this the same story that you told in your classroom, a very similar story to this one? Yes, yes, this is the same story. Where did the inspiration come from? as far as the storyline itself, Duck Magic? Well, we've got a house on Stradbroke Island where the story takes place. And uh, on the island, there's um, an Aboriginal settlement. And um, I was used to um, seeing Aboriginals on Stradbroke Island. So maybe we could have visiting Aboriginals. The story deals with a family. The Smith family, is that the name of your main characters? Yes, that's the main characters. And what was the inspiration? Why did you feel you wanted to write this book and share the the story? Well, I thought that um, uh, the two, two races of people should meet in a friendly atmosphere and share their differences. And um, that's the whole theme of my story, sharing the differences, realizing the differences, and trying to understand the differences between the different sorts of people. And you also, in this, in, in a, an imaginative way, uh, talk about peace and find ways to, to resolve issues. What happens with this Smith family when they get this gift that's dropped on their doorstep? <laughs> yes, they uh, they couldn't believe it. They thought it was a Christmas gift, so they took it inside and opened it up. And um, not knowing anyone from uh, Cloncurry, they were surprised to find it was three duck eggs. So they went out to do Christmas shopping, and when they came back. The duck eggs had hatched, and there were three little ducklings wandering round. And Mrs. Smith said, it's the fairies. 
and that's the beginning of the fairy story because this is really an Australian fairy story. Well, as it happens, they put them outside on the veranda and um, went out Christmas shopping and uh, covered the uh, duck, little ducklings with uh, wire netting. And when they came back from Christmas shopping, they found three Aboriginal children instead of the ducklings. And Mrs. Smith said, again, it's those fairies. And that's the, that's the whole story, uh, the fairy story, it's, an Australian fairy story. It's beautifully illustrated. Uh, why do you value yeah. imagination? What's the value of, of uh, being able to imagine stories and imagine circumstances? Well, I've been blessed because all my life I've been able to imagine things and uh, I really enjoy my imagination. Not that it interferes with my reality, but it, it's fun. And you are uh, an observer of fiction on TV, I'm certain, in Australia. I'm not sure we're calling from the United States, but... What is the difference in the type of stories that you find there? What do you see on on television in fiction? In fiction, what in children's fiction or in yes? In uh, how about children's fiction? What do you see that's either good or bad on television in Australia? Oh, it's mainly cartoons, ABC cartoons, and um, they do have a a few little fiction stories that they, uh, the ABC puts on, but it's mainly the ABC, which is a, a broadcasting television. Now, you've retired as a, as a school teacher as far as a full-time job. If you could travel anywhere and fly anywhere in the world, where would that be? Hmm. I can't really travel very far. We're both uh, a sort of a bit beyond that for long distance traveling, but it would be lovely to go to London again. And in your imagination, you could go there. Yes, yes, we've been there before. I have. Uh, uh, I've had instances in my life where I felt I could fly. Have you ever had that uh, that experience? Oh yes, I, I, um, I, uh, I used to imagine that I had. Wings sprouting where my arms were, but um, then that was only my imagination. But children can do it. They can actually uh, wave their, small children wave their arms around and pretend to fly. So I thought, why not let these little Aboriginal children change into ducks and be able to fly? Beautiful. There are some aircraft or boat craft in the uh, Australian Gold Coast that actually fly off of the water. Have you ever seen those? I know. I've seen them on TV, and uh, they are uh, very amusing. Yeah, it's um, it's not quite the uh, Jesus boats, but it's uh, it's um, flying boats. <laughs> Incredible. Those must be fascinating to see, and I'm sure uh, uh, stimulate the imagination of children everywhere. That would be a wonderful yes, thing to see. Yes. Mm. Are there some key messages or 
themes underneath the storyline that you've created that uh, you want to share, want people to get from reading your book, Duck Magic? Um, I'd like um, children to realize that um, they don't have to feel they are bullied and they can um, have a reply to the bullying as it comes from within themselves. They just must be brave. And um, that's one message. And uh, the other message is not to give in and uh, just be brave. Good good advice, especially from a former teacher. I'm sure you uh, inspired a lot of children as you were going through your career. How would you introduce this book to someone? What would be a couple of sentences that you could get someone interested in in getting a copy of Duck Magic? Um, well, there's a page there where the children go up to uh, a cave and they come across some bullying men in the cave and uh, just trying to find the page here. Uh, but um, they stand up to them and, um, of course, the, the, the uh, men in the cave think they are nuisances coming to disturb them. And the children, it's on page 25, and um, these, uh, these bullies in, in, the, in the cave, here are the children get lost. And Jane stood up tall to her full height. You're nothing but two eggheads, she said. With that, the men changed into two white hen's eggs, balancing on the, rock, the rocky shelf of the cave's entrance. The children sighed deeply, thankful for their near escape. Jane, you were very brave, said David. Yes, agreed the others. Now what will we do with these eggs? John, who had been very frightened, suggested that he could smash them. Throw them on the rocks, said Tommy. Then we'd be no better than them, said David. Let's boil them for breakfast and eat them. Bill had another idea. We'll paint faces with beards on them first. They all thought that was amusing and laughed at the idea. James acted very bravely again and said, no, let's leave them here. If we go home now, we won't be here when they turn back into people. Very clever. Um, Very clever. Uh, Your book is unique from a couple of perspectives. What makes it different from other children's stories that are in the marketplace? Well, this um, deals with the interaction of uh, two different groups, uh, ethnic, ethnic groups of people. That's different, and it accommodates to their differences, and um, it gives the children solutions to work with, and uh, it also, also why I wrote one of the reasons that I wrote it is that it is a, an easy read, um, an easy read for children who have. Problems reading, uh, very simple English, with a good story. 
32 pages. You've done a great job, and it's wonderfully illustrated. And, again, I think the unique part of this and a part that is uh, very important for children to understand is the Aboriginal uh, peoples. There's uh, references to them and to their lifestyle. So that's wonderful. Were there any challenges in writing this book? Well, this is the first of a, uh, of a trilogy of uh, uh, stories uh, about the Smith family and the Namu family. And uh, the, um, the second one follows on from that, and it's uh, duck, duck Magic, the Duck's Return Visit. And the third one is Duck Magic. The duck's last visit, and in the last um, story, the duck's last visit, I uh, researched uh, a great number of uh, Aboriginal ideas and uh, understanding, and I incorporated that in the uh, in the story and compared it with the Smith family's ideas. So we have a good contrast there between the two groups of people. Good teaching element, good teaching idea. This particular book, this first one, is titled Duck Magic. Our author is Elvira Davis. Elvira, where can our listeners get copies of this book? Um, From Ex Libra Souls. It's... um, Available at Amazon, and it's also available at Barnes and Noble. And in the future, you may be setting up a fan page on Facebook, and our listeners can do a search under your name, Elvira Davis, E L V I R A D A V I S, and find out about your other books when they are released. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Joe. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Sanaku, and the author is Elizabeth Evans, and Elizabeth joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Steve. 
Great to have you with us. You're going to take us all the way back to the 13th century and focus on an empire back then in Africa called the Empire of Mali. Uh, Some of us may have heard that word before, Mali. Uh, Probably most people don't know about it at all, but this is You're going to focus on what you say, the people of the royal court, the plotters, the murderers, the traitors, the mentors, and the lovers. So this has just about everything, doesn't it? I tried. (laughs) Well, you're an experienced writer, and uh, we'll find out about some of your other books. But first of all, tell us a little bit about your background and why this book. Well, I'm an educator, and... um, I was head of school in Los Angeles and um, was drawn to this subject. I knew a little about it, but then some things um, drew me to this particular story. And so when I finally retired, I had time to write the book. Tell us, what does Sanaku mean, the title? Um, in the book, it is a, a warrior's pack. In Mali, it has a broader definition. It is really about family and uh, devotion to family and loyalty and sort of, I've got your back, you're a part of my family, you're a part of me, and therefore, um, I have your back. So there's a there's an underlying theme of this book. What would you say is it? I mean, why, you know, go to Africa in the 13th century? Uh, what are you saying to us? Well, this is a long, convoluted story. Um, I came to the book. I was motivated because I saw a picture of Angelina Jolie, and her, I don't know, was most recent, well, at that time, the most recent adoption. She adopted a child from the Sudan. And looking at this picture, I thought, oh, my gosh, look at this contrast, not only in skin color, but in cultures. And I started thinking, what is this child going to think about her new affluent lifestyle, new culture, and is she going to remember her past? Will she, will she know who she is? And uh, as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? African Americans really don't know our history. We don't, in a sense, know who we are. And having uh, taught for years and been head of a school, I knew that African and African American children adopted by affluent families often have identity crises. And so I thought, as a teacher, I think I'm going to write about this. (laughs) And as much as I love history and love reading history, most people don't find it boring. So I thought, ah, historical fiction, put in a little murder, a little intriguing concubines, a little uh, intrigue, and then throw in some romance and sex. (laughs) And people we'll pick up some history on the way. <laughs> you know, it's one of those teacher tricks. How do we get kids to yeah. learn this stuff? Well, and, and to help us really connect with uh, the African continent, and uh, obviously uh, through this 
fictional history view. Yes. Yes. Well put. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell us about these warriors. Now, they are these two warriors make this Sanaku, this pact. Right. Uh, tell us about um, those two warriors. Yeah, they're actual people in uh, the history of Mali. Uh, Sanjata Keita was um, known as the great king, but before he became king, he had to, of course, battle the evil other king. And um, Saoni Conde was a warrior, and he is a true character, true person in history, helped him defeat this uh, Sumangura, don't need to remember that name, but uh, helped him defeat at the Battle of Krina. And as a result, Sunjata included him and his tribe in his family. But all this happened when they were still warriors. Uh, Sunjata then became head of the empire, built this empire from his father's kingdom. And uh, the pact with this other warrior who became chief of his small Kandi village, that relationship remained throughout his, their, both of their reigns. So that's who they are. They were real so, characters. Right, and then 20 years later, they crossed paths again. Yes, they did, because, uh, and this is fictional, <laughs> Because Sanjato, who had everything he wanted except a husband for his rather odd daughter. So he turned to his uh, Sanuku, Feoni Conde, and said, Oh, by the way, I understand you have a son who is unmarried. Send him to me. And Feoni had no choice. Um, so he had to send his son, who was quite reluctant, to go and marry this woman um, because her, the um, mother of Sunjata had a reputation for being exceedingly unattractive. And this is true. She um, was a humpback. Mm. So this... Prince, his son is not anxious to go to Mali to be wed sight unseen to a woman that he's decided must be like the grandmother, must be a hunter. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's the conniving uh, concubine who wants the throne for her son and wants her son to marry the princess and take over the kingdom. And uh, of course, some teapots get murdered and stuff right. needs to be stolen, that sort of thing. Well, anytime there's some kind of an alliance happening at the royal level, at the palace level, there's always somebody who wants to prevent it. Exactly. Someone always wants the power. Right. There's, that's what this is, the struggle for power. And so, exactly. Uh, what? Give us a, a view of another prime character that drives this story? Uh, there is a character who is Nubian, a Nubian assassin, who uh, has escaped himself being killed because he fell in love and decided not to follow the um, pharaoh's instructions. 
and uh, takes on mentoring this prince to get him through what's going on at the palace and helping with the palace intrigue. So this whole pre-colonial Africa, very different from post-colonial Africa, this takes this into a whole new world. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's why I wrote it, because people don't know about this um, pre-colonial Africa at all, and Mali now is a, has shrunk into a very small uh, country that is, suffers from great poverty um, and all sorts of problems that happen across the African continent. But before the colonization of Africa, because there was gold and jewels, it was a very, very wealthy part of the world. And Mali at that time spread over a large portion of West Africa, all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. So obviously this would be very interesting to African Americans uh, from, you know, to learn about their roots. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's why I wrote it, because when we go to school and learn history and have world history, I think it's still in 10th grade, um, that part of Africa is not part of the world. And you know, according to history books, we don't know that that um, this even existed. And of course, with this kind of a culture comes customs and way of life that people today you know, wouldn't realize went on back then. Exactly. And that was one of the things that I so enjoyed about writing the book is doing the research. Fascinating. Just fascinating. So I loved, I loved uh, learning these things myself and then being able to pass them on. So you're setting up this conflict, this intrigue with the plotters and the traitors and the murderers and the mentors and the lovers, as you put it. I mean, so we have just about every element of life in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff went on in the 13th century in Africa and is still going on around the world, as we both know. So what did you, what would you say you learn new in doing your research for this book? Wow, let's see. Well, one, well, oh, yeah. one thing that um, I was amazed at was something called um, Brother Banter. Now, in the uh, States now, it has become popular, at least it was a couple of years ago, this talk about playing the dozens which is something that has been done in African-American culture forever, where you uh, trade insults with someone, but the person is a good friend, and you just don't go over the line in your insults. And a lot of the insults have to do with your mama. <laughs> <laughs> so I was fascinated to find out that this originated in Africa and was called Brother Banter and done the same way. You would insult uh, your quote-unquote brothers, but you never stepped over the line, which is part of this having the skill of the game is to know just how far you can go. So I found that just fascinating. And your book 
Sonaku is part of a trilogy? Yes. Uh, the second book is about um, Islam and how Islam spread into West Africa. And it is called the Marabout. And the Marabout is an Islamic uh, missionary of sorts that are still active in West Africa. And, of course, if, you know, people get murdered <laughs> and the usual intrigues and uh, so on and so forth. So it's about Islam and the struggle between Islam and the traditional religions and the struggle between uh, the lovers. Of course, there's always romance and sex how people want to read the books. And you've written a couple other books. Uh, in fact, you have two paranormal romances, as you call them. Yes. they. I've, I write them just for fun. It's pure fun. Don't have to research. Just have to tongue-in-cheek <laughs> do um, this paranormal stuff, which, you know, some take seriously, and I think that's marvelous, but I just have a good time with it. Tongue-in-cheek. Again, the title of this book, Sanaku, and we've been talking to the author, Elizabeth Evans, part of this trilogy that she's writing. Uh, Elizabeth, tell us, how do we get your book? Um, Amazon. Am um, Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Right, and any, of course, any uh, online retail outlet can get it, and you can walk in off the street into a bookstore and order it. So uh, it's available. Exactly. It's available just about anywhere. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you, Steve. I've enjoyed this. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on DougieNet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our author today is R.J. Spordone, who has written a book titled Client from the Future. And I welcome from California, Dr. Spordone. Thank you. Welcome to the program. I notice on the back of this novel that you have penned, the opening lines that read like this. Dr. Joseph Morgan is a clinical psychologist who treats clients with emotional problems. 
He learns from one of his clients who he discovers is from the future that extraterrestrials have secretly transformed thousands of human beings, including prominent political leaders. Sounds like uh, uh, something right out of the headlines of today. How would you describe your novel? Well, it's it combines a lot of different things. It combines clearly it's science fiction, but it also combines uh, some of the work that's being done in the neurosciences area, where they've actually putting chips in the brains of at least animals and, and some people. All right, for various reasons, and it also kind of looks at today's society and kind of exposes it a little bit. All right, and. Uh, and it was, it, again, it was all, there was no plan or, uh, the only plan was I was sitting there at a desk in front of a, a computer, and when I could find the time, I'd start writing. And there was no outline, I just started writing. And over a period of three years, kind of find time within my incredibly busy work schedule, uh, to write this thing. And for our listeners and for those who are, are listening uh, on the radio currently, you are involved in neuropsychology and other Correct. other sciences of that profession that are similar to your, your main character. And where does this story take place and in what time frame? Uh, in, the, in the current time frame. It is current time frame. So. Current time frame, yeah. And actually, he does go back to the past he's capable of doing that with the technology he's given and he, he can also go into the future as well this should be an intriguing read for those who love science fiction there's a, a large body of work 292 pages for a first novel that's remarkable in its own right who did you specifically decide this book might appeal to when i wrote it i i just started writing it wasn't that I was appealing to any specific audience. It was something that I just let come out of my head. Right? <laughs> I just wanted to create a story that was interesting to not only myself, but to whoever else wanted to read it. Was this also in some ways, if I might use the, the term, was this a clinically freeing for you to do such a, such a novel? In some ways it was, because, you know, when you, I've written, obviously I've written six textbooks and I have over 120 professional publications that have appeared in scientific and medical journals. And the thing that's so nice about science fiction is that you can be creative. <laughs> Whereas your, your creativity is limited when you write something scientific because you can't go you can't go past the data, right? Correct. And uh, you have to stay within certain confines. People will kind of get the wrong impression of what you're saying. So with science fiction, there are no limits, <laughs> which is something I really enjoy. And I've, I've wanted to write a book like this for well over 40 years. This sure, surely was a very freeing uh, exercise in, in creativity. You've titled it Client from the Future. Who is the client from the future, and what is his involvement in the storyline? Okay, the client from the future, his name is Val, V-A-L. And he doesn't have a last name, or at least he won't give it. And he is someone who is part human and part alien, all right? Sounds like a lot of us. Yeah, probably so. 
and uh, and he's from the distant future, and he has come back and essentially recruited um, my character, right, Dr. Morgan, to help uh, prevent the aliens and their hybrids or biological robots that they've transformed into these creatures from taking over the earth and destroying mankind, all right? And this was, it wasn't an accident that they chose him. He had been a, a Navy SEAL lieutenant who had won the uh, Navy Cross and, and the um, Silver Star for his heroic acts of combat. Mm -hmm. He was actually a Navy SEAL legend before he left the, the Navy because five of his uh, SEAL team were captured by the Taliban while they were on a mission in the Middle East, and the Taliban were going to behead his, his men. Right. Well, he goes in all by himself, single-handedly, <laughs> and kills all these Taliban and frees his men. <laughs> yeah, this is an amazing guy. He really is an amazing guy. And he had been, before he became a Navy SEAL, he was an all-American football player at SC as a middle linebacker. <laughs> he had been in naval intelligence before he became a naval, naval SEAL. And this guy's very smart, too. He graduated uh, summa cum laude <laughs> with a degree in physics. <laughs> mm -hmm. So he has a lot of abilities and so he's kind of the, and he was a, he was a, he was in SEAL Team Six, right, which is the most elite SEAL team. Absolutely. And and they thought he was great because he understood how the enemy thought, and he knew their weaknesses and he knew their strengths, and that made him a hell of a warrior. Right? And so this, so when Val is choosing someone from Earth to defeat the aliens. They picked him. Now, now, did you tell me there were some dark secrets in his past, or is it one of your other characters' past? No, no, there aren't dark secrets in his past. His parents were killed when he was five years old, right? They were hit by a, a drunk driver, right, as they were driving home on the freeway. And so he's raised by his grandmother, and then his grandmother dies when he's 12, and then he's raised by his paternal aunt, who didn't have any children, but she taught him to be tough. <laughs> and mamas can do that. Yeah, and, and so he goes to, you know, he graduates from high school with straight A's, and he's offered a, a scholarship to Harvard. <laughs> he makes perfect scores on the SATs, and uh, they send, Harvard sends a U.S. senator to trying to recruit him to go to Harvard to play football there because he's an all-American high school football player as well. And he decides, no, he, he wants to go to SC because SC, they have a team that's up for um, national championships every year, and so that's what he wants to do. And then when he goes to SC, he, he joins the um, naval, it's in the naval ROTC program because he wants to become a naval officer when he, when he finishes. And so he was, he, he was probably the best college linebacker. And, and if he had been drafted, he would have been uh, probably the first or second guy to be drafted. <laughs> That's how good he was. That's good. And uh, he decides instead he wants to be a naval officer. And, uh, and, get, and then, of course, because he's so bright, 
they put him into the Office of Naval Intelligence, and they give him the highest stop, top secret clearance there is. <laughs> and he enjoys it, but on the other hand, he misses all the physical stuff that he when he was playing football that he loved. So he decides that he's going to be a Navy SEAL and goes through the Navy SEAL officer candidate program and gets through this program, and uh, it, it's a very tough program. Uh, the dropout rate is very, very high, but he doesn't. He stays through it, and he's one of a hundred officers or candidates who go through it. Only twelve finish it. Incredible. <laughs> twelve. And that's basically true to life, also, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Are there some uh, themes specifically that you have reflected on as you're writing this book that will be picked up by the reader that you think are important to today's uh, society? My character is, he has, he is extremely honest. He has a high sense of morality. And in fact, um, he leaves the Navy. He resigns his commission because he's on a mission in Iraq, a covert mission with his team of 12. And they're in this, in this barn and they're hiding. Uh, they're waiting for it to get dark so that they can leave. About a hundred yards down the street is a Republican guard garrison, and that's their most elite, um, you know, military. And there's about 300 of those guys down the street. <laughs> and this little 12-year-old boy walks in on the barn and sees them and realizes that these guys are spies or Americans, and he's ready to run out and run down the street and notify the Republican guard unit who will kill him. Right. And he can't let that happen because the mission is important, and he and he doesn't want his so his his men to be killed. So he's forced to silence the boy by cutting the boy's throat. Mm. And he just this is the most horrific thing he has ever done in his life, and just is really bothered by this. Even though he saves the lives of his men and keeps the mission intact, when he comes back to San Diego. After the mission is over, he realizes that he has to, he's going to resign his commission. He can't do this anymore. And he sees a clinical psychologist in the Navy and is impressed by how this psychologist treats him and deals with him and everything. And he decides that when he leaves the, the Navy, he's going to go back to school and become a clinical psychologist so that he can help people rather than kill them. Dr. Spardone, you mentioned that uh, the main character gets the opportunity to even do some time travel. Is there any unique happenstance that is a result of his ability to do that? Well, he, his, his parents were killed when he was five, so he grew up really never knowing his parents. And he really didn't know much about what his father did and really didn't know much about you know, his, his, his mother because he was too young. When they, when they were killed. So he, his wish is to travel back into the past and get to know his parents. And, and he does that and gets to know both of them, lets his father know who he is. <laughs> and then, and then um, later he, he realizes that his father is the physicist, a brilliant physicist, sort of the Einstein of his time, <laughs> and that his father has been working on a very highly classified government project to, um, to develop technology that's based on alien technology, right? Hmm. The 
that his father is working on this. And uh, but then he he recruits his father to help him fight the aliens. <laughs> Good idea. That's a great storyline. Now, now, did you mention also that perhaps he uh, tries to influence his younger self for his uh, later, later life choices? Yeah, uh, his younger his younger self is this five year old boy who's who's very smart, who's just a really nice kid, and and his, his who asks him about himself, and he explains that he was a you know a Navy SEAL and he was a football player. His younger self asks him, well, what what does a linebacker do, and what do, what do Navy SEALs do? And he explains, and his younger self says. That's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> That's a great storyline. I, I love the way you've, you've structured that. That that really sets it up nicely. Thank you. As you're reading the book, you you think you know what's going to happen next. Well, the problem is is that the story changes. <laughs> well, that's sneaky. Dramatically, and you're sort of left with this. Oh my God, what happened? And it it changes like 180 degrees to the point where you're you're like, oh, my God, and uh, that will keep you on the edge of your seat throughout the whole book. That's a good writing technique, keeping folks on edge. I like that. And so people who have read it have just loved that part. They just, they just because it, 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 it is not something that will bore you, if you put it that way. Well, an excellent job. Are there other, I would say, um, exciting scenes or action scenes in your novel that might stand out? Oh, there's many of them. <laughs> Which one there do you think is scenes. the most striking? He um, he is given this advanced technology by this his client from the future, Val, and his girlfriend, who's a beautiful attorney, corporate attorney, is abducted one night by uh, these two uh, gangbangers who, about once a month, they abduct some beautiful woman and they. They rape her and kill her and cut her into pieces. That's sort of what they enjoy doing. Well, he's in his office and he puts on this this hat that that belongs to the his client from the future. But the hat is very advanced technology from the future, and it allows him to see exactly where his girlfriend is and what's and what she's doing right at that point in time. And he realizes that these guys are going to kill her. Well, the, his client also gives him a strange ring that earlier that day, and he doesn't know why he's given the ring, but he puts the ring on, and the ring teleports him instantly to the site of where these two guys are and his girlfriend. That's, that's convenient. Yeah, and because he's, he's, he's been you know, extremely well-trained, and, and there's a technique that was, was called SCARS, S-C-A-R-S, and it is the most uh, deadly form of, of combat ever developed. It was developed by a former Navy SEAL in close quarters combat. And he kills both these guys, even though they're bruisers, all right? Right. Kills, he just kills them both of both these guys. And uh, now the police are after him. <laughs> and then these, these, these gang, the head of the, this gang decides that they have to kill him and kill his girlfriend right? so they're hunting for him and uh, and one evening uh, he sees these guys heading for his apartment he's not there but his girlfriend's there <laughs> so he has to go in and, and essentially kill them all of them <laughs> which he does <laughs> and he's he's very good at that 
<laughs> well, it's, it sounds to me like it's a movie of the week, or at least a movie series. I mean, I think this could uh, really transfer. Is. And everyone uh, who has read the book has told me this should be made into a movie. It's so good. Fabulous. That's great commendation. You've had some, some five-star ratings, too, haven't you? In fact, nearly all of them have been five stars. Fabulous. And what do you think separates your book from the rest in the marketplace? What makes it different? Well, I've never seen a book like this that actually talks about the, the content of what's in this particular book and particularly how it's arranged. Yes. And the challenging part of, of actually completing this, your first novel, was there anything that was a challenge? Well, it was overcoming all the other things I had to do. <laughs> I mean, I was working 80 to 90 hours a week, <laughs> and that's what I typically do, and trying to find time, find some time to write this thing, given that schedule. That was tough. Traveling a great deal, consulting all over on, on very difficult cases, and it's just a matter of finding the time to sit down, and, and then I'd... I'd write maybe a few pages, and then I couldn't do it. I'd have to, you know, go back working again. And then it wouldn't be sometimes for several weeks before I could go back to it again. So, but I did, and I, I knew that if I didn't do that, I'd never get it done. It's an amazing accomplishment, considering your schedule, that you have completed a book of this magnitude, 292 pages, titled Client from the Future, and our author, R.J. Spordone. Sir, where do we get copies of your book, and do you have another book in the future? Well, I, I set the, the book up to, for a sequel, all right? And at the very last chapter in the book, as it's written, you can see that it's, it's being set up for a sequel. He, 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 he's, he has essentially defeated the aliens, and now he's, he's realizing that there's a lot of... Um, stuff going on on this planet by some of our leaders that they are they are really not working in our best interest and in fact working in a very selfish way for their own private interest mm. harming mankind it does sound like a contemporary novel now uh, where do we get a copy of it uh, well ex libris is the is the book company you can go on amazon and you can just type in client from the future and the book will pop up immediately and you can order it from there and if you have a Kindle you can download it uh, to the to your Kindle very good and are you personally planning a website or have you accomplished that at the moment I may have some publicist came in some time ago and set one up but I confess I, I had been so busy that that I haven't looked at the website and how to get to it, to be honest with you. Well, they can search online for you, R.J. Spordone, spelled S-B-O-R-D-O-N-E. Yes, Dr. correct. Dr. Spordone, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we look well, forward to talking with you in the future. Well, same here. Thank you. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.